0: Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? or you do you despise the riches of his kindness restraint and patience not recognizing that god's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance because of your hardened and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when god's righteous judgment is revealed he will repay each one according to his works eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. Father, we thank You for this text. God, we thank You for Your righteous judgment. We thank You, God, that You have given us instructions. You've given us insight and clarity how to think about life, how to think about the world, how to view ourselves in relation to You. And I pray, God, that this morning as we study these verses, God, that You'd help us to understand Your righteousness more fully, understand Your judgment more completely, God, and that it would draw us into greater worship of you we ask in jesus name amen in order to understand the flow of paul's thought in chapter two we need to make sure we're tracking with what he just finished saying in chapter one so i want to start by giving you a 30 second outline of romans chapter one okay so we've covered a lot of ground in the last four weeks here's a 30 second outline so one of the major points that Paul makes in Romans chapter 1 is that people need to be saved from the coming wrath and judgment of God. That's verse 18. People need to be saved from God's coming judgment. He says also that the gospel is that salvation. The gospel has the power for that salvation. This is the good news This is what he talks about in the first half of chapter 1 and then he explains the reason that God is going to judge and punish people Is because they're unrighteous They are guilty and then he spends the second half of Romans chapter 1 Explaining sort of making his case for why people are guilty. Why are they unrighteous? He says they don't worship God They don't thank God. They don't glorify God. Instead, they worship the creation. Instead of worshiping the creator, they say, I'll take what he's made. I'll take the creation. Because of their idolatry, they have descended into sexual immorality, even homosexuality, and completely corrupted thinking. He says they practice evil and they celebrate evil in all its forms. This is Romans chapter 1. And this long explanation of the source and the results of unrighteousness and godlessness, it raises a very important question. So there's this tension building in the text as you're reading what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. And here's the question. What should you do with unrighteousness? You, as the reader of Romans, the recipient of the letter... What do you do about this? What do you do with all of this unrighteousness in the world? And I love the book of Romans because it's not difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes of his original audience. Our culture, our world is full of unrighteousness and you don't have to look far. My family and I, we were out at Texas Roadhouse the other night And I love Texas Roadhouse. The the food is so good, but they just blast music in there. I mean, it is so loud. And this song came on the radio, and it's not just in the background. Like, you can't ignore it. This song came on the radio, and it was a song that I had not heard before. It was by a guy named Luke Combs, who is apparently a pretty popular country musician. But let me read a little bit of the lyrics for you. Here's what he says. I've had a large mouth bass bust my line. A couple of beautiful girls tell me goodbye. Trucks break down, dogs run off, politicians lie. I've been fired by the boss. It takes one hand to count the things I can count on. No, there ain't much, man, that ain't ever let me down. And the beat drops. Cue the chorus. This is the chorus. Long neck ice-cold beer never broke my heart. Like diamond rings and football teams have torn this boy apart. Like a neon dream, it just dawned on me that bars and this guitar and long neck ice cold beer never broke my heart. Now, I hear a little bit of chuckling even as I read that. You almost can't read it without a little bit of twang in your voice. (laughs) But do you catch the message of the song? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the one thing you can love without having your heart broken, the one thing that you can count on that will never let you, drown, let you down is what? It's getting drunk at the bar. That's what it is. It's a celebration of unrighteousness. And that song is like innocent. It's incredibly tame compared to so much of what is out there right now in our culture in terms of music. And like hit music, popular music. So you see unrighteousness everywhere in the culture. You see it in politics. You see it in our community. And I'm confident you see it in your relationships. Relationships with people in your family, extended family, relationships with your neighbors, relationships at work. There are people in your life right now that fit the description of Paul in Romans chapter 1. What are you supposed to do with that? How are you supposed to view those people? How do you navigate your relationships with them? What do you do with all of the unrighteousness? That's the question that Paul anticipates, and he answers it here in chapter 2. And his answer might surprise you. He gives us three responses to unrighteousness. First, do not judge unrighteousness do not judge. Verse 1, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. It's a story in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel. David is the king of Israel, and God has been very good to David. He's blessed him. So David has conquered all of Israel's enemies. There's peace, there's incredible prosperity. And David, in his comfort, he becomes bored and lazy. One day, he's out on the roof of his palace. He looks down, he sees a beautiful woman, and he says, bring her to me. And it is the wife of his friend, Uriah. And Uriah is not just David's friend, he's a commander in his army. He's been loyal to David He has risked his life for David, and he's actually off fighting at this particular time. David takes advantage of it. He sleeps with his wife. Uriah's wife Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and so to cover it up, David makes sure that Uriah is killed in battle. It's horrifically evil. He's guilty of adultery and murder, and God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. And here's how he does it. He tells David this story. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Nathan says to David, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and his children. From his meager food she would eat, and from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now this is very wise by the prophet Nathan, because david previously in his life was a shepherd he had raised sheep tended sheep certainly he had sheep like this where they slept in his arms and he cared for them and he nursed them back to health when they were sick and so david could sympathize with this poor man and the rich man he comes along he has flocks and he has herds but he can't bother himself to sacrifice one of his own animals For one single meal, he takes this family pet, little lamb. Verse 5, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. I mean, that's a severe judgment. (laughs) Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. Do you see what he does? David condemns himself. Paul essentially does the same thing. In Romans 1, he says, do you see how wicked people are? They're full of idolatry. They're full of unrighteousness. They don't love God. And his readers are like, yeah, that's terrible, unbelievable. And then he says, you know what else? They they worship God idols they worship images that look like animals and his audience is like terrible awful idolatry we hate it and he says they're sexually immoral and they're corrupt and they're wicked and they're all like yeah that's awful that's so bad and then in romans chapter 2 verse 1 paul turns to his readers and he says that's right it is bad and you're one of them you're one of them This had to have been so awkward for the guy reading the letter to the church. (laughs) It wasn't like they didn't have email then. There's just one letter. It's on a piece of parchment. They would read it to the church. This is so offensive. It's so unexpected. Look at what he says. He's really explicit about this in the language. In chapter 1, verse 20, he says the unrighteous are without excuse. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says you are without excuse. Chapter 1, verse 18, the unrighteous are condemned. Chapter 2, verse 1, you are condemned. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, the unrighteous do unrighteous acts, all kinds of them. Chapter 2, verse 1, you do the same things. How should you respond to unrighteousness? Do not judge. unrighteous now this is instruction that Paul certainly got from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7 Jesus says this do not judge so that you won't be judged for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others and you will be measured by the same measure you use now what exactly does it mean to not judge others this is an important question What does Jesus mean, do not judge? Well, I think it's helpful to exclude first what Jesus doesn't mean. What does Jesus not mean? The original word in the manuscripts, it's in Greek, it's the word krino, and it means to separate or to sift or to pronounce an opinion concerning right and wrong. So there's two basic meanings of this word. The first is judging like you're at the Iowa State Fair. You're deciding who gets the blue ribbon for the best Holstein heifer, or apple pie, or something like that, that's crino. It's judging. It's judging at a sporting event, or being an art critic, or a music critic, or something like that, so there's no moral evaluation of what is right and wrong. You're judging the quality of a thing. You're judging the merit or skill of someone in a particular discipline. So you think about the judges like on the show American Idol so is jesus saying do not judge like that 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 randy on american idol shouldn't say hey it's a no for me dog (laughs) i don't like the way you sing of course that's not what jesus is saying when he says do not judge it does not mean that you're not to make use of your critical faculties and in fact you couldn't even do that if you tried it's impossible not to do this when you go to the grocery store and you're buying apples you look at the apple, and if it's bruised and starting to go bad, you discard it, and you pick the biggest, best, cleanest apples. So Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't judge in that sense. The second meaning of the word crino is making moral judgments. So it's when you look at other people, and you look at their actions, you look at their behaviors, you look at their speech, you look at their attitudes, and you say, that is right or that's wrong it's good or it's bad. Now, is Jesus saying you should not make moral judgments about right and wrong, good and bad? Of course, he's not saying that. This does not mean that you are not to make moral judgments about what is right and wrong. How do we know that? Well, in the very same sermon, just a few verses later, Jesus gives Commands that require you to make moral judgments. Look at what he says in verse 15 of Matthew 7. He says, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. If Jesus meant, when he says do not judge, that you are not to make any evaluations about people's behavior morally, then you couldn't obey this command. He says you've got to look at people and you've got to, in certain situations, decide, is this a sheep or is this a wolf? Is this person from God or are they a false prophet? And, and how do you do that? You have to judge them. <laughs> you judge them on the basis of their life, their actions. He says a tree will be recognized by its fruit. If Jesus meant that you're not to make moral judgments, then the entire moral law would be pointless. (laughs) Wouldn't it? How, how How would you even know if someone, yourself included, was following the law without making judgments? Of course you're supposed to make moral judgments about people, about yourself, and about others. And notice as well that not making moral judgments is also impossible to do. It's maybe more impossible than the first kind of judgment. You're making moral judgments and evaluations all the time. And even if it was possible to not make moral judgments, if you were even able to somehow pull that off, it would actually make you a terrible person. It would make you a terrible friend. It would make you a terrible parent. It would make you a terrible spouse. Could you imagine trying to parent your children if you couldn't make any judgments morally about their behavior, about their attitude, about what they say? Of course you have to make moral judgments. Even the idea that it's wrong to make moral judgments is a logically incoherent position. Have you ever thought about this? This is actually a pretty commonly held view in our culture that like the greatest sin, the, the, most, the wrong thing you could do is look at somebody else's lifestyle and decision and say that's wrong. But that is an incoherent position because if, if you make a judgment about me and you say, Darren, you're doing something and that's bad, And I say, it's wrong for you to judge me. I've just judged you. (laughs) Do you see that? It's totally incoherent. And Jesus doesn't hold incoherent positions. So what in the world does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? We get more of an explanation in Luke's version of this same teaching. Luke 6, verse 37. He says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The heart of the matter, and what Jesus is instructing, do not judge, is your attitude toward other people. It's not that you shouldn't make any moral judgments about others, you couldn't even do that if you tried. Jesus' point is you need to do it with an attitude of love and mercy and forgiveness. Of course you need to make proper moral judgments. That's, That's part of being a good husband or wife or parent or friend or coworker. Being able to make proper moral judgments, but when you do it, do it with an attitude of love and mercy and forgiveness. I think a better way to say this in our modern language is do not be judgmental. Not don't make judgments. Do not be judgmental. Do not have an overly critical spirit or condemning attitude. One commentator said this, this is not a command to be blind, but to be generous. I think that's right. It's not a command to be blind. That'd be silly. It's a command to be generous. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, puts it like this. It's very British, but it's excellent. He says, to put it very simply, man is not God. Man is not qualified to be God because he cannot read men's hearts. He does not know their thoughts or their motives. So to be censorious is to dare arrogantly to anticipate the day of judgment. It is for me to assume the role of the divine judge. Man is also among the judged. Here, Jesus warns us of the danger to which we expose ourselves if we do start to judge other people. And the rationale seems to be this, that if we stand in judgment upon other people, we are giving evidence of our highly developed powers of critical judgment. So that if we pose as judges, we cannot claim ignorance of the law which we are presuming to administer. So when we judge others, we give ourselves a feeling of righteousness. We even imagine that we are immune to judgment ourselves when actually we are inviting a more severe judgment. To put it in legal terms, if we enjoy occupying the bench, we mustn't be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 2. So what should you do with unrighteousness? Do not stand over the unrighteous in condemnation. Why? Because you're in the same boat. That's the idea. What should you do instead? Again, shocking. Paul says, identify with them. Don't judge them. Identify with them. This is the second response to unrighteousness. Number two, identify your own unrighteousness. Instead of looking for it, judging it in others, look for it, identify it in yourself. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. This simply means if God judges someone to be guilty of unrighteous acts, that means they did the acts. If you're guilty of the crime, if God, if God says you are guilty, it's because you did it. God does not judge based on hearsay. He doesn't judge based on an intuition or a gut feeling. He judges based on absolute objective facts. Did you do the unrighteous thing or not? Verse 3, do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? So, What Paul is basically saying is he says, God is not just looking out there at the unrighteous heathen out in the world and judging them. He's also looking at you. He's evaluating you. He's making a judgment about you. And what does he see? He sees all the same stuff. (laughs) Again, this mirrors Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7. Right after Jesus says, do not judge in verse three, he says, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye. And look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul condemns the unrighteousness of the heathen. In chapter 2, he shifts his focus to the hypocrite. And the problem with hypocrisy is not that you're making moral judgments. That's not the problem. It's a problem of priorities. It's a problem of priorities. And this is exactly what Jesus says. Does Jesus say, don't ever remove a splinter from your brother's eye? Don't do it. Don't look at the splinter. Don't notice the splinter. Pretend like it's not there It's not what he says He just gives the proper Priorities, he gives the proper order of operations. What is it? He says first Remove the beam of wood from your own eye. That's step one I you got to see it identify it it's there and it's not enough just to identify it You actually have to take it out remove it change and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. Once you've identified your own unrighteousness and once you've changed, you've removed it, then you have new perspective. You can see clearly and you can help your brother. That's the idea. You don't judge him. You don't point at it. Look, you got a splinter in your eye. You're terrible but but you are now in a position once you've dealt with your own unrighteousness to come alongside your brother and help him and serve him and love him by helping him see his unrighteousness and helping him change so if you're a christian when you encounter unrighteousness your attitude should always be to first evaluate yourself this is the key to avoiding hypocrisy This is the key to not being judgmental. First, recognize your own sin, your own failure, and remember your need for God's grace, your need for mercy, your need for the kindness of God that you are dependent on. There's a principle here in Romans 2 that I think is incredibly helpful. It stings a little bit, but it's true. This is the principle, that no matter who you are, you are far more like the heathen than you are like God. No matter who you are, you are far more like the person, the profile of the person Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, than you are like God. You have more in common, all of you, you have more in common with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah morally than you do with God. That is an offensive reality. And when you say it out loud, most people are like, how dare you? (laughs) You don't know me. Who do you think I am? What are you talking about? But you have to deal with this truth. Look again at Paul's description in Romans chapter 1 and just go through the list of behaviors and ask yourself. We're just going to do it real quick. Have you ever been arrogant? Have you ever been proud? Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever been envious? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever been in a quarrel? Have you ever been deceitful? Have you ever broken someone's trust? Have you ever slandered or gossiped? Have you ever been unloving? Have you ever failed to show mercy? And even if you made it through get that gauntlet, which none of you have, <laughs> even if you could, there's the issue of worship. Have you ever loved something more than God? Have you ever trusted something, served something over and above God? That is the heart of idolatry. That's the heart of all wrongdoing. The heart of sin, where it comes from, is a failure to worship God as God. Every person is guilty of that. And so you have a beam of wood in your eye that you need to deal with. Now, that doesn't mean, if you're a Christian, this does not mean we go around with our head held low, I'm just, you know, I'm a terrible sinner. I'm a horrible person. That's not what you should do. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that your perspective should always start with man. In, in many ways, I'm no different. Now, in many ways, you are different. Not all sin is the same in terms of its consequences for your life, but the heart of the matter is the same. You have your own unrighteousness to deal with. How do you deal with it? Well, this is the third response to unrighteousness. Paul says you turn from it. Turn from your unrighteousness. Verse 3, do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Why has God's wrath not come on the unrighteous yet? Why is God restraining himself from judgment? You remember in the Old Testament, Genesis, he judged the world. He flooded the entire world. But after that flood, he delivered Noah and his family and he made a promise, I'll never do it again. I'm never going to flood the world, never going to destroy the world with fire again. Why? Why did he make that promise? Why is God's judgment, why doesn't he just rain down fire on the unrighteous right now? Paul says he's restraining himself for a reason. He's showing kindness to people for a reason. He's being patient for a reason. What is it? Repentance. God longs for people to repent, to turn. First Timothy 2.4 says he wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so if you really hate the unrighteousness that you see in others and that you see in the culture and that you see in the world, the most appropriate response is to look for it in yourself and change. That's step one. Before you get really passionate about moral issues in the culture, you should get really passionate about your own personal holiness. Where do you need to turn away from sin? change your behavior change your thinking change your attitude make whatever change is required that's what repentance is it is turning away from sin turning back to obedience to god so i want you to consider this question this week i want you to think about this when you encounter unrighteousness which you're going to you can't turn on a podcast you can't turn on the news you can't walk down the aisle at a grocery store without encountering unrighteousness. And when you do, I want your instinct first to be, where is God calling me to repent? What do I need to change in my thinking? Where do I need to turn? Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. It's not something you do once. I I repented, I turned from sin, now I'm a Christian. I'm done repenting. It's not the way it works. It is something you walk in It's a way of living. It's a way of thinking. It's an attitude that says, I am so committed to obeying God that when I fail, I'm wrong. If I fail to obey God, if I fail to meet his standard, the problem is mine. It's not with God. It's not with his word. It's not with his commands. It's not other people's fault. I need to change. That's repentance. And having an attitude of repentance will protect you certainly from being a heathen, but it will also protect you from becoming a hypocrite. It's one more thing that Paul explains that will help you know how to deal with unrighteousness. And we'll close with this. He says, verse 5, Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those Who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. Here's the one application for you this week. And this is going to take some work. You don't just flip a switch and this happens in your life. But here's the application, I think, from these first 11 verses. Understand how God's judgment works. This is really important. And again, this is something that will require effort. You have to study the Bible. You have to pray. You're going to have to dialogue About this with people in your community group but work to understand how God's judgment works if you want to be properly motivated to hate unrighteousness and walk in repentance not be a hypocrite you need to understand how God's judgment works and there are two aspects of God's judgment that Paul explains here the first he says there is no favoritism with God there's no favoritism with God I have a picture here of Lady Justice This is a statue outside of the Supreme Court of the United States, and this is a statue that is outside of many courts across the country. And Lady Justice is a personification of justice depicted in a statue. And she's always portrayed as blindfolded. You notice that. And the idea is that justice doesn't care what you look like. Justice doesn't care what your ethnicity is, the color of your skin. It doesn't care whether you're male or female, young or old. It doesn't care what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't care what kind of clothes you wear. It doesn't care what you do for a living. Justice doesn't care about any of that. It cares about whether you are innocent or guilty. Did you do the thing or did you not do it? That's what justice is concerned with. God is the same way. God shows no favoritism. And what Paul is saying specifically, so he's writing to a mixed audience. In the first century, part ethnically Jewish, part ethnically Gentile, all of them are Christians. And what Paul is saying is you don't get a free pass for being Jewish. All this stuff we're talking about, you don't get a free pass for being Jewish. God doesn't show favoritism, and you don't get a free pass in our setting For being a Christian growing up in church declaring that you're a Christian maybe even going to church regularly maybe even being able to articulate gospel truths yeah you know I'm a Christian Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins you're not going to be judged on that basis you're not the second aspect of God's justice God's judgment that Paul explains, is that you will be judged on the basis of what you have done. This is what he says, verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Many people, many Christians, believe that you're going to be judged based on what you believe about Jesus. That's the basis of God's judgment. But that's not true. That is not how God judges people. It says explicitly right here, you will be judged according to your works. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you probably have a little pause right here. You're thinking... Is my pastor a heretic? (laughs) Is he teaching heresy this morning? Because just earlier in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says that salvation is by faith. That the righteousness of God, it comes to people through faith. And in chapters 3, 4, 5, Paul is going to hammer this point. You are saved by faith and faith alone. This is the same Paul who wrote in Titus 3, verse 4, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not by works, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, same Paul. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. So is Paul contradicting himself? No, he's not contradicting himself. Here's the principle. This is so hugely important. When you get this, It will help your understanding of who God is and how His plan of salvation works in the world. Here's the principle. Justification. That's another word for salvation. Justification is by faith alone, but judgment will be according to works. Justification is by faith alone, but judgment will be according to works. So you guys, bad news. You're all guilty of sin. So am I. And the only hope that any of us have to be saved, forgiven, made righteous, set free from the punishment of God in hell, the only hope we have is that Jesus died in our place. The perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God, Jesus hung on the cross and he took the punishment of God that I deserve and that you deserve And he offers us his righteousness. He offers us cleansing morally that we can be made holy and pure like God. We can have the spirit of God. We can have the hope of eternal life. And we can do nothing to earn that. We can do nothing to earn his forgiveness. We can do nothing to earn eternal life. It is ours only by faith in Christ's work on the cross. But you still have to face judgment. We will all still face the judgment of the Lord Jesus on that day. And when the Lord Jesus evaluates your life on that day, when He judges you, it will be based on what you have done. That's what Paul is saying. So how do you know if you've put your faith in Jesus? How do you know if your sins have been wiped away? How do you know if you have the Spirit of God? How do you know if you've been cleansed by His blood? Verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. How do you know? Well, what do you seek? What do you seek? Paul says if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you seek the glory of God. You seek the honor of God. You're looking for life forever with him. That's what immortality is. That's what you're after. That's what you want. That's what you love. That's who you trust, that's who you obey and serve. That's what's motivating you if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, if you've been justified, if you've been made righteous and born again. But if what motivates you is selfishness, if what really gets you excited is the world, what you can have, what you can become, what you can experience, then you have to question whether or not you really have put your faith in Jesus. What do you do? That's the other question that Paul gets at. He says, there will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good. Good works don't save you, but they are the natural external byproduct of inward faith in Jesus. This is really important. The way you live really matters you will be judged based on that now god is not looking for perfection christians are still going to stumble you're still going to sin you're still going to make mistakes but the attitude of a christian is when i fail when i fall i repent i turn and the trajectory of your life is pursuing god loving him doing good because his spirit lives in you you've been made righteous you've been born again So that's the question. Who or what are you worshiping? Who or what do you love? Who or what do you serve? When you understand the judgment of God, I think His wrath becomes much more frightening. But I also think the gospel becomes so much sweeter. He he rescues us from that. He rescues us from sin and punishment, and He sets us on a course by His grace with His power where we actually can live a righteous life. Not on our own, but by His strength, with His motivation, with His love, with His righteousness that flows through us in Christ. It's an amazing gift. Let's pray. God, thank You for explaining these things to us. God, it's just amazing the detail and the precision with which You have explained your heart and your mind. We don't deserve to know any of this. And you make it known to us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand your judgment. God, I pray that you would help us to anticipate the day when you return. God, that we would want to be ready. God, that we we would think about standing before you and being evaluated by you. And God, I thank you that in Christ... We're free from guilt. We're free from shame. We're free from sin. We don't have to wonder, am I going to heaven or am I not? Does God love me or does he not? You've proven your love to us, God. You've sealed our fate in salvation through the blood of Christ. But God, I pray that that would make us all the more passionate to live for you to serve you, to walk in obedience, to care about the output and intentionality of our lives that we would aim at your glory. We would aim at your kingdom. We would aim at loving others because you want them to be saved. God, we need your help. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.